This morning, we are going to be bringing to a conclusion our Lenten sermon series, and I'll explain where that has been at the beginning of the message. But for the sake of this morning, we will be looking at the Gospel of James, I mean, sorry, the Epistle to James. Uh, it's found on page number 1199, and we will be looking at chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. The words will also be on the screen behind me as it also is in your text, the scriptures in front of you. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes to his fellow leader, James, Know this, my beloved. I'm sorry, James writes, I, not Paul writes to James, James writes these words. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned, we are in the season of Lent, this particular season, time of the year where we truly focus on the sacrifice of Christ and the response that he calls us to have to that sacrifice. And that's been our focus. We've been looking at and building the sermon series around the idea of the text from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 that says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, meaning that as we look at the sacrifice of Christ, there are sacrifices that we are called to make, offering our very selves, our bodies, in response to that great act of grace. And to help us do that, we've been looking at a few areas, a few of our body parts to offer up. Looking at Psalm 95, we were encouraged to offer our hearts in worship to God, recognizing that the great king alone is the God of the universe, and he truly is worthy of our praise, sacrificing our devotion to all other things. We then talked, looking at Philippians 2, how we are to offer our hands in unity, in fellowship with one another. How we are to sacrifice our own selfish desires for the greater good of God's kingdom and for the purposes of his church. 
Last week, we looked at Nehemiah 8, where we were reminded of what happens when people neglect the word of God, and we were encouraged to offer our minds in study of that word to ensure that we are knowing God's revealed self and his desire for our lives. And while that is extremely important, that will go nowhere unless we get to this final piece that we are looking at this morning, which is offering our feet in service. To not only know what the word says, but actually going and doing that word, applying it to our lives. I don't always like canned sermon illustrations, but I appreciated this one that I came across this week that told the story of a pastor who one day got onto a local city bus, and after he paid the driver his fare and got his change, he sat back down, and when he was putting the money back in his wallet, he realized that he had been given the wrong amount of change. And not only was he getting a free ride, but in fact, if he kept the money, he would be paid to go on this little bus trip. And then the dilemma was before him. On the one hand, he could try to rationalize this as a gift from God, as an opportunity to, to have a little bit of extra money to be free to, to do something that day, maybe go out to lunch that he wouldn't have had the opportunity to otherwise. But he knew what the right thing was, and it especially pricked at his conscience due to the fact that just that week, this minister had preached a sermon on honesty. And so that dilemma felt incredibly strong. And so finally deciding that when he get off the bus, he stopped and he approached the driver and he said, sir, I'm sorry, but what you didn't realize is you made a mistake. When you gave me this change, you gave me too much and I want to give it back. And the driver responded, actually, that wasn't a mistake. I was in your church on Sunday, and I heard your sermon on honesty, and I wanted to put you to the test. And while the pastor of this particular story passed that test, I wonder if that was more the exception than the rule. And I wonder that because I know myself. I know myself as a pastor. And I think of a number of times where I've stood behind this pulpit and I've said what I know is true. And I've challenged you and myself to apply that word to my life. And yet when I go forth, I don't always do that very well. I think of sermons challenging us to, to go and share the good news with others. But then in that week, not only neglecting or sometimes avoiding opportunities to interact with people that don't know the Lord. And letting those opportunities slip by rather than seizing them as an opportunity to proclaim the truth of Christ. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Many people have grown up in the church. We get into these routines of making sure that we're here and we're hearing the word proclaimed. And while there are times when we get excited about the message that is heard and we are convicted or challenged or encouraged in a particular direction, the reality is that oftentimes by the time we get to our cars, the point of that message is forgotten and we go on and live our lives without actually making any real changes to the way that we live our lives. Those, we, are the kind of people that James are talking to in this text that we just read this morning. It says, uh, I think the clear summary challenge comes in verse 22 when James says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
So another experience I think all of us can relate to is when we are present with someone who is talking at us or to us, but our minds are somewhere else completely. It's a teacher at school, it's our parents, it's our spouse, and we're doing fine and they're chattering and we hear that there's volume and words going on, but then all of a sudden they ask us a question or stop and and look for a response. And then we're caught because we have to confess, though I knew you were talking, I didn't pay attention to what you were saying. I heard that you were speaking, but I wasn't truly listening to what you were saying. And as that happens in human relationships, so often that happens with scripture as well. Again, last week you could hear that call, that challenge to make sure that you are reading the text, that you're giving your time, your devotion, your mind in study of the word. And so you go and and you get one of those reading programs and you spend the time going through the scriptures and you check off the box and it feels really good that you're engaging in the word. But that's not the purpose. The purpose isn't to just get through and check off all the boxes. The point is, are you allowing that word to shape the way that you are living your lives? And sadly, again, often we don't even remember what was read, let alone allowing it to apply to the choices that we make even in that very day. Well, to help challenge his hearers and us In that idea, James uses this brilliant analogy of comparing, as I did in the children's message, the word of God to a mirror. And I'm going to elaborate and spend some time looking at that analogy this morning. Now, first of all, let me highlight the significance that I believe is there in him choosing a mirror to use as an illustration. Because I think even there is something that we should learn about. You see, very often, instead of using the the scripture as a mirror, something to reflect back our own image, to look at our own selves, oftentimes I fear that we can use the word of God as a magnifying glass, looking outward and at other people instead of reflecting on ourselves. And so it's very easy to recognize the sin in other people. And it's very easy to be able to say, don't you realize that what you are doing is not in line with God's word? And we get upset and we get disappointed and we get all concerned when we realize that individuals or our culture in general is drifting from God's word. And when we use it as a magnifying glass, it's so easy to point out the sin in others. But Jesus talks about a parable or he tells a parable Where before we look at the speck in our brother's eyes, we ought to examine the plank in our own. And really, instead of using scripture as a magnifying glass, we have to use it as a mirror because so often we don't. Because when it comes to my sin, well, I've got an excuse and a reason. Sure, I know what the Bible says about lying, But if I didn't lie on my taxes, I wouldn't get the money back. And and the government would go and waste it on other projects that we don't like. So I have to, to fudge the numbers here or there. Yeah, I know what the Bible says about drunkenness, but I had a really rough week and it was a wedding. It was a time to celebrate. So, of course, we had to just let our hair down for a moment. I could go on and on, but I won't. 
And the sad reality that sometimes we use the word of God not as a mirror, but as a magnifying glass. But in fact, I I have to confess that that isn't the point of the illustration. The real point of this illustration is not the mirror per se, but it is how we use a mirror. James says that there are two ways of using a mirror, to glance or to look. A glance in a mirror is, I think, how we most often use a mirror. Just before we go out, we run into our bedrooms or our bathrooms, and we quickly check to make sure that we are presentable to society. Is our hair where it belongs? Do we have any food left over in our teeth because of lunch? Or are our clothes all unstained and ready to go? And as long as we take that quick glance to make sure that we're presentable, we're able to run out and, and go and engage in the world. And again, I think that's often how we can use the Bible. We just do a quick glance. Are we taking care of all of the important things? Are we not guilty of the great big sins? And are we still in a relationship with Jesus? Good, okay. Then we're set to go. We can be presentable in the front of society. We know how to act toward other people. We can make sure that we look good enough with a quick glance and move on. But when we do that, we fall into a real temptation that the scripture is warning us against, thinking that we're all put together, thinking that we're all good, that as long as we've got the basic fundamentals taken care of, everything is all set. But James mentions that when we do that, we have the tendency to fall short. And he mentions a couple of areas that when we forget what we look like in scriptures, like we do ridiculously walk away from a mirror, not remembering what we look like, we, are, we have the propensity to fall into a couple of sins. And he does mention a few. At the start of the text that we read, James talks about how we should be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger, James says, is a serious issue. For people who want to call themselves Christians, but go and live upset and quick to snap at others. Now, first of all, we have to notice that he says the anger of man. Uh, Jesus, on occasion, is described as being angry. God, at times, is called a a God that has wrath. The the, the, The anger of God is a righteous anger against the sins that we commit. But so often, that's not the case with the anger of man. As one commentary put it, not all anger is sinful, but the quick-tempered, selfish anger of the world betrays a lack of trust in God and a lack of love for others. When we are quick-tempered, we are acting in rebellion to God's word and will for our lives, and his will for our lives, and we will not be living up And aligning our lives with that word, deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are better than what we are. And when we are angry, the world doesn't want to approach us. They don't want to know about our relationship with God. They don't want to engage with us because they are fearful that our response will be snappy. Another area that James highlights is a lack of control of our tongues. James is pretty clear in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
This would include the categories of swearing, cursing, lying, or tearing others down with our words. Again, all things that true disciples of Jesus should not be doing and evidence or a lack of evidence of a a true change in your heart. You can be a faithful attender at church. You can go to all of the Bible studies available to you. You can even be a leader in the church. But if your tongue is out of control, it says your religion is worthless. And that's what Christians see. But imagine what the world sees. If we, knowing and and claiming to be a Christian and and talk about what we did in church and how we attended and and even some of the things that we're studying, but instead what they see in us is someone who is angry and who uses their tongue to tear others down or is loose with our tongue in the language that we use, how do non-Christians perceive our relationship with the Lord? Years ago, I was struck by a comment that was on a a CD of a Christian band called DC Talk. And it says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Believable. And that's the warning of those that glance at the mirror, who just look at Scripture, who hear the words passing past their ears, but don't really take it into their hearts and actually apply it to their lives. Not only does it betray their testimony of the Lord to the world, Not only does it deny the power of Christ that work in your life, but it deceives yourself, as Scripture says, saying your your religion is therefore worthless. But what James is calling for is not for us to be glancers, but lookers. And again, kind of building on the analogy, this is the kind of looking we do in a mirror maybe on a Saturday morning where we spend some time and we look for those new blemishes that have popped up. We count the the gray hairs that are coming into our head. We recognize the extra pounds that we've been putting on and where the wrinkles are starting to come into our face. And we truly see who we are. And we walk away from that mirror saying, there's some things I want to do or changes I want to make for myself. And, And that is how we are to treat the word. It's when we truly look at it and we have a better understanding of who our God is and who we are. And again, using our sermon series, when we do that, when we truly look at the word of God, what do we find? First of all, as we found in Psalm 95, that our God is a great God. We marvel at the things that he has done, the power that he has. We marvel at his own righteousness and his call for the righteousness of those that claim to be in a relationship with him. With, Psalm, with Philippians 2, we learn about how we are called to love others. How often our own desires break and get in the way of true unity and fellowship and how we have to uh, deny our own desires and selfish wants for the greater purposes of loving our neighbor as ourselves. 
We learn in Nehemiah 8 and with many other places in scriptures the dangers, the problems when God's word is neglected. We see over and over again how throughout history people that wander from the word of God put themselves into all kinds of dangers and trials and struggles because they are turning their backs on God's commands for their lives. We learn of what we are due because of that. How because of our wandering from God, God says, okay, I will give you what you want. And I will let you be dismissed from my presence forever. But then we hear of his pursuit. And in his love, how he sent his one and only son to come to this earth. To teach us anew of the way of Christ. And to pay the penalty for our sins by hanging on the cross. And himself taking on the wrath of God so that we would not have to experience. We hear of his resurrection from the grave. Which is not only the promise of a new life that we can find in him. But it is the promise that we can become completely new. That with the power of his spirit now alive in us. That we are no longer in bondage to sin but we can be set free and we can live the kinds of life that he created us to live from the very beginning in fact it is because of what Jesus has done that James can talk about how it says in our text in verse 25 that the law is the perfect law the law of liberty There are many places in the New Testament where Paul, talking about the law before Christ, talks about how we viewed it this morning as a convictor of sin, how it it convicts us of the fact that we have fallen short and that we are in need, that we are sinners and we have no hope in our own strength to be able to live in a right relationship with God. But because of what Christ has done for us, perfecting the law, And now embodying us with his spirit, sending him to live among us and to guide us. How now the law is not a convictor of sin, but it's the law of liberty. It sets us free from enslavement to go and live for Christ the way that God intended. When our study of the word is one that looks intently into the word and then takes those words and not only hears them, but goes and lives according to them. When we actually sacrifice our desires and wants to live out the word of God, then there are some positive things that people will see in us. Having listed some failures, James goes on to uh, in application to saying what does true religion actually look like? And he spells this out in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction... And to keep oneself unstained from the world. One of the first ways of evidence that Jesus is alive in your life and his word is being played out. Is the way that you interact with people who are struggling and who are downtrodden. In the text, it specifically mentions orphans as widows and widows. Those who are vulnerable in society. Those who had great needs, who struggled to provide for themselves and were at risk of of living a, a meaningless life of struggle and burden and to go for them and look to them. And that's why I'm especially grateful that we have Crossroads Ministries with us this morning because I think this fits right in there as well. 
We might not all be called to this ministry, and, and that might not be where God's directing all of us, but this is one of the ways, I think, where we are encouraged to go and look out for the vulnerable, to remind them that they are not alone. And as we have received the message of grace and love, we go forth and we encourage others with that same word of hope. Now notice in the text, it doesn't say go and solve the problems of the orphan and the widow. No, he says true religion is to visit, to be present, to just make them know that they are not alone, that you are there and that you love them with the love that Christ has first given to you. The second challenge then, the positive outcome when we truly engage in the world and, and are touched by that is that we are unstained by the world. When our focus is on the word, when we hear God pouring into our lives and his voice is the loudest, then we can ignore the challenges, the invitations, the temptations of the world to just live how we want to live. To find satisfaction in, in possessions or in engaging in sinful activity. To hear the lies of the devil who is seeking who he may devour. And saying, well, well, true joy is when we give in to sin. True freedom is there. No, true religion is when we are unstained by the world. To develop that kind of relationship to properly respond to the sacrifice that Christ has made for us is not just to show up to church on Sunday. It's not just to be here and check off the box and say, oh yeah, I heard a, a sermon that I liked. It was good, if that ever happens. But it's to apply that word, to let it not only sink into your ears, but into your hearts. And then when you're walking and moving, you have your eyes open to the needs of those around you, you have your tongue under control, your anger, your emotions under control, and you are a child of God offering yourself as a living sacrifice for Jesus. And again, that's the whole point of this series. That as God alone is worthy of our praise, we offer our hearts in worship. That as uh, God has invited us into community, into fellowship, that we offer our hands in unity to one another. That as God has given us the gift of his word to instruct us, we offer our minds in study of that word. But more importantly, as he has guided us with instructions and, and given us commandments, that we offer our feet in service, applying that word to the choices that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. That's a challenging word to preach. It's a challenging word to receive. I am convicted by it, but I hope that as we move forward from this place together, that all of us will desire to offer our feet in service as opportunities present themselves even in this coming week. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you for being a God who has spoken. A God who has revealed not only himself, but your desires for our lives. And as we do see in that word that we have fallen short, we praise you most especially for providing an answer that where we are incapable of restoring our relationship with you, that you are our reconciliation, that you purchased for us our freedom with the blood of your son on the cross. 
and that you have given us and called us to a new life in you. Lord, forgive us when we've neglected that, when we've been willing to claim the rights of heaven without really being changed, where we view our connection to your word as just something to check off and to to claim as being done without allowing it to truly shape who we are. And my prayer for myself and for all those in this congregation this morning is that we would not just be glancers at your word, but we would truly look into it and apply it to our lives. Lord, in this coming week, we know we will face temptation. We know that there will be opportunities presented to us in order to be present with those who are hurting or suffering or struggling. My prayer is that having heard your word proclaimed this morning, we would be doers. We would look for opportunities. We would resist the temptations that come our way. And through that, we would make you, the God of the universe, look good to a watching world around us. Father, draw us into your presence as we seek to draw others into that relationship that you desire to have with them. All of this we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord, the one who makes all this possible. Amen.